0: All right, guys. Uh, welcome to our to our second ever into the word. I'm going to have to, uh, yeah, I have to pull out the teacher voice, although there are plenty of other teachers. Thank you for jumping in there. Um, it's great to have you. Yes, I've just recorded. Thanks, Brenda. Great to have you, and great that you managed to find your way through Cherrybrook. I, I spent I did several laps of Shepherd's Drive um, before I found the secret lane to get here. So you guys found the secret lane way you're here, and it's great to have you. I mean, thank you so much for coming out on a you know a cold Wednesday night when you've come from work, you might have kids struggling to get to sleep or whatever uh, and it's it's just really encouraging that you're here um, and and getting behind this effort to uh, as a church uh, drink into uh, drink the word um, get uh, into the word as our as our name suggests so, as you know from all the emails and everything, tonight so we're studying the book of Romans um, and I'm going to tell you just which parts of Romans in a moment. But I'm going to ask Riley um, to come and pray for us to open. Oh,
1: let's pray. For you. Uh, dear Lord, you are the great God, you are the great King and you are worth studying, you are worth reflecting on, you are worth uh, understanding more. And I ask that in your mercy um, we may all lead with something, some way, Some thought that gives us more love you, more joy you, more uh, more resources to praise you Mm -hmm. tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. Lord, please open up this book for us that we might actually come to understand it better. Whether it's the first time we've read it or the thousand, Mm -hmm. uh, Lord, may you do something through your spirit that uh, we're changed and this isn't just for the mind, but it'll change our heart and our actions as well. Mm -hmm. Lord, I pray for Mike and I ask that you would uh, speak through him, give gift of teaching now that we might be encouraged. Pray for Wayne as well for the same.
2: And
0: I ask for your glory um, and for our joy that this will be a profitable night. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Riley. So, yeah, as uh, you would have heard in the, the prayer, we've got a few uh, twists to tonight. Um, a new segment I'm hoping to call Wayne's World. Wayne, Wayne, who's the dark horse... <laughs> the Dark Horse scholar of our, of our group, and who has um, got a real gift with ancient history as it relates to the scriptures in particular. I think that's his, his research interest in times past, um, uh, uh, among his many other interests. Uh, and so Wayne's going to um, come into a little segment in a while um, on what life was like for Christians living in Rome. Those on the receiving end of this letter, as we're going to get into, this letter was not merely a, a textbook logged in the mail um, from, from Corinth Whipple, is probably writing. Uh, this was a letter designed to encourage a particular group of people. Um, and Wayne's going to be helping us uh, paint that or, or, or appreciate the book in its wider setting, which is going to, I think, be very helpful. So thank you to Wayne. And then also, as another bonus, um, we've got uh, Joel's electric guitar up here. We're going to uh, sing it again. Jesse pointed out uh, that at the end of the last Into the Word Night, when we had um, when we were looking at the Psalms. The one thing he wanted to do was get up and sing. And I provided no forum for Jesse to get up and sing. And so we're rectifying that tonight. And actually what we're going to be doing is introducing a song, uh, a new song into the Sovereign Grace repertoire, actually one written by Sovereign Grace Music recently, um, called Grace and Peace. And, um, you know, that's a standard New Testament letter greeting, but it's a great response to the Gospel that we're going to be delving deeply into um, tonight. So that's where we're going. There'll be a couple of... Um, workshop sort of um, uh, talk to the person next few moments, one in a few seconds, um, but the way to follow on, I'm going to have some slides here uh, which I can make available to you later if you like, um, to save you like Paso <laughs> walking up and snapping a photo of the slides every now and then, or oh, noticed that last time, Paso. Uh, <laughs> I can email you a PDF if you like, um, or put it on the website. The new website, which is up now, by the way. How how cool is that? Um, And the other thing is, uh, so I've been talking about Romans being like Everest, and it really is the the views it affords of the gospel and the Christian's heritage uh, through the gospel. It's also like Everest in that it is a heck of a climb, and Riley and I um, are still somewhere near base camp. So far as making one of those nice devotional booklets goes, Um, So that's going to be coming to you hopefully in a few weeks. Um, But even though we're doing far fewer chapters, we had 150 with the Psalms, and we're going to be doing Romans 1 to 8 for the booklet, the density of these chapters and their importance uh, to the Christian life means that we want to take our time to do it properly. So what we've got is a little taster in the meantime. This is something you can follow on um, tonight. It's a double-sided sheep. And some of you might even find this more handy because you can just tuck it into your... Bible or whatever in your pocket, I don't know um, what you prefer to do with it, and use it as a guide later um, to have a read through Romans. And I've got these little, um, if you look right over the back, um, where the bulk of what we'll be doing tonight is, which is looking at the structure of chapters 1 to 8, um, and I'll explain that choice in a moment. You can see down the right hand side there are these questions for reflection. So you can, in a way, the whole purpose of these nights, if um, It's worth me saying again, even if you came last time. These nights are really just an an entree into a book. And the whole um, point of it is just really to invite you to go away and on your own, or maybe with friends uh, at church or even occasionally in in life group perhaps, um, to uh, dig into this book yourself. It's really just a night to kind of give an introduction, give you some some handlebars, some pointers as to how to um, best do that um, on your own. And as I've said, I said at church... um, it's hopefully, there's something in it for everyone. So if you, like Riley said, if you've never read the book before, hopefully this will be um, empowering for you, and not overwhelming. And um, please let me know if I can help it be less overwhelming if you're finding it is. I'm definitely open to having that sort of response. Um, and if, it, if it's sort of the hundredth time, and like Brendan, if you've memorized it in Greek, um, then hopefully there's still something um, in it <laughs> uh, for you as well. Um, But I want to know what you guys think. So I wanted to start just with you guys talking with each other and getting your heads in the the Romans mind space. Um, Just a really simple question, a set of questions. Um, What do you know about Romans already? Um, What's one thing you like about it already? And what's one thing um, you want to know more about? So just two or three questions there. I want to give you just one or two minutes to um, talk with those next to you. Maybe someone you came with, maybe someone you didn't. Marcus is looking around for someone to talk to. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and I'll hear from a few of you guys in a moment. What do you know about Romans already? It might be nothing. Um, what do you like about it, and what do you want to know more about? So a few, a um, few minutes uh, with the person next to you. <laughs> So, what did you, what, what came up in conversations? Um, any uh, any passages or aspects of Romans? I mean, those of you who are familiar with it somewhat, what do you what do you think of when you think of Romans? What sort of things came up in discussions? Anybody?
3: Sue's
0: favourite book. Seuss favorite book. Uh, any book in the world. Yeah. So, favourite book in the world. <laughs> That's pretty solid. Sue. So what what would you um, say is the reason for that? Yeah, Yeah. so true. I think that's a great answer. Pretty much what I was going to say tonight, so thank you for (laughs) (laughs) that. That actually sounded a bit better, I've got to admit. So, um, yeah, anyone else? um, Things that they're familiar with or identify with um, Romans? Those of you who are familiar, not that you have to be, but any other thoughts? What came up in this quadrant over here? People are looking away from you. This isn't school. <laughs> <laughs> it's got these sort of furtive sideways glances. Um, Sue's kind of vibe. The, the gospel laid out in detail. That's what you reckon, really? The
1: gospel applied as well.
4: Yeah. A, mm. Chronologically, it's something the follows. Put together. Yeah. It's the first time that it's a, an
0: application. It yeah, because like. it comes so right smack thing. bang after the Acts. Acts Romans, and it's the big. Yeah, and there is possibly something to that too. Its placement. It's not, um, well, no, it's not the first letter Paul wrote, right, but it's the one that those organising the canon decided to put yeah, front and centre um, in terms of the Bible's organisation. Um, yeah, any other thoughts? What about things that uh, you want to know more about? Murky parts or, or questions? That might be a harder question to answer. Sometimes you have to know. Yeah, Brendan?
4: Oh, I think like for a lot of people. Yeah, like it does have a... You feel like you feel like
0: error. get lost. Yeah. And you're
3: like, where am I, and where are we going,
0: and what is this talking about? <laughs> yes, uh-huh. yeah. That's a really helpful comment. Yeah, it, indeed it does. And because the, it is such a um, detailed um, unpacking of the Gospel, as Sue said, it can be like that. Because Paul, for whatever else he was, and he was many other things, is a brilliant um, he's rhetorically brilliant. He can sustain an argument and sustain a point and then take little branches off that point and then a sub-branch and still end up where he was heading. <laughs> and you can get lost uh, on the way. And so that's, that's why I suppose tonight, that's a helpful comment, because tonight what we're hoping to do um, on the whole is give you a sense of where the book does go. What are the, the summits, if you like? Um, and like um, all good summits, you put in work to climb them and then when you get there, because you've done the work, the views are, are all the more um, spectacular. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing. I don't want to leave it um, just as mere sort of spectation of the views. They, I really want you guys to be thinking about how this might address you. And I've been thinking about where, and I'll come back to this at the end. What Romans, um, ah, I meant to show you my second slide. Um, what Romans might do to you. And why, why read it because this is it's a full-on book I was saying to Riley like going you know spending I've spent the last couple of months immersing myself in it and just become actually all the more awed by it to the point it is like handling weapons- grade plutonium. It's, it's a full-on thing and if you let it if you let the missile you know make contact and direct you know it's directed at your heart it has a big impact. So um, I'm hoping it does and I'm terrible for switching metaphors. and. You'll, as you'll notice but I want to do that um, because the, the the key phrase I want you guys to take home um, tonight I think would be to let the gospel colonize your heart and your will let the gospel colonize your heart and your will like an a good imperial power I, I've spent it's my nine-to-five job at the moment to teach a course on the history of imperialism and we often talk about the, the colonization not of just countries but of Consciousness. And, you know, we, we, we write about it as critics. We think it's a really bad thing that imperialists come and colonize other people. And, it, well, it is. But Christ's rule, his imperium, is a good rule and it's the rule we need. And he rules, as we'll see, through this very gospel. And so I, I want you to ask him to colonize your heart. That's what I'm doing. And it, it's a full on thing. What a colonizer does is look for rebel strongholds, right? They they come in and snap out um, opposition. And so I've been thinking about, and you might want to think about certain kinds of opposition, certain holdouts against the Gospel, whether it, it might be worldliness in your life, it might be self-righteousness in your life, it might be a lack of assurance in the Gospel, um, it might be a, a discouragement um, and, and, a, and and a need to turn to the hope held out in the Gospel. But whatever it is, uh, it might be a lack of zeal uh, for the spread of the gospel, but this this book really does, if we let it do its work, colonise uh, our very being. So it's it's at it once encouraging and daunting, I've found myself. And that's partly why uh, I decided to break, um, at least for the, for the moment, break it in half and uh, we'll think about whether we come back to the second half later in the year. But we're going to just look, because there's so much here, we're just going to look at Romans 1 to 8. And what that does is get us starting very, very low, as in Romans <laughs> brings us down into the dirt from the outset, but it does that to bring us to make us cry out for mercy, and then as we approach Christ and see His mercy, it lifts us up um, to these summits we've been talking about. So I asked you the question there: Why read Romans? And you guys have been thinking about why or what you know about Romans. And I want to start though with some other um, great figures. Um, you could go through church history, and there's this. Speaking of weapons of great there's, there's a long history of Gospel explosions coming out of um, people reading Romans. Um, I haven't put him up. You could go to, to Augustine, the 4th century uh, theologian who, before Luther, was probably the most influential um, uh, theologian in, uh, in Western theology, in a good way. And, and he became a Christian, effectively, by overhearing somebody reading Romans 13. Um, Martin Luther, though, I love this quote. I don't know if you guys can read it on the screen. Um, Dad, your eyesight might be a bit hard at the back there. You, were, you, were, you can read it? You can. Good. Um, Luther <laughs> talks about how he's um, he, he's been wrestling. He's, uh, if you know anything about Luther, he's the, the monk, um, a 16th century monk in Germany. His job is lecturing the Bible at university. Um, but he's responsible for much of um, the Reformation teaching which swept the world and which we still, um, you know, which has really helped us read the Bible right down to today. And it was Romans that did it for Luther. Um, I'll read this quote. He was talking about his wrestle um, with how could anybody enjoy reading about the righteousness of God, which is what Romans talks about. That was an abhorrent phrase to me. It was just one of fear. And he says, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God, which is another word for righteousness, um, and the statement that Romans 1.17, the just shall live by his faith, which is Paul's capstone argument of the book. He says, Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture, he says, took on a new meaning. And whereas the justice or righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. I mean, what a remarkable thing to say about the book of the Bible. This became to me a gate uh, a, a gate of heaven. Um, John Wesley was another example. He, um, again, if you're looking for people who changed the, uh, the Western world at least, um, Luther and then Wesley was really... Instrumental in the shaping of what is now evangelicalism, right? This movement started in the 18th century, and um, you know, I think um, even though we're not Wesleyan because we're Reformed in our sense of the doctrines of grace, something a lot about Wesley's um, devotion to the Lord and his uh, stress on the the heart um, was um, was crucial for the shaping of evangelicalism. So let's look at Romans. Um, according to Wesley, or what Romans did to Wesley. He was talking about, he was in, uh, I think it was Cambridge or Oxford, one of the two, and he went along um, to hear somebody reading um, Luther's preface, so we've got the lineage from Luther, um, preface to the epistle um, to the Romans in 1738. He said, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. So another person um, dramatically older just by encountering like Sue said, the gospel um, in fact Luther, I put it on the top of your sheets here Luther called Romans uh, the purest gospel um, and he, he's deliberately not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John here, he's talking about Paul's great exposition of the gospel. What is this message that saves? So, tonight what we're going to be doing uh, is looking at four S's. Um, this is, these are designed to equip you um, to, uh, in your own time, savour this book to digest this purest gospel. Um, I'm wanting to encourage you to see Romans in its setting. That's the first S. So, although this is... This almost looks like a theological textbook, the way Paul lays it out. It, set, it starts with justific- or sin, justification by faith, kind of moves through themes of sanctification and then predestination and then various aspects of Christian behaviour. Um, this wasn't, as I said, um, just a thesis that got <laughs> logged in the mail uh, to some group. Um, it wasn't uh, just uh, a book with, with a few, you know, hello, how are you, tacked on the front. It was very much a letter... written to real people with a real purpose in mind. Um, Secondly, I want to encourage you to follow this structure and uh, savour the summits. We're going to look at those things together because Romans is very much, um, unlike many, I mean, Paul's books always have an element of this, but this one, I think more than any other, um, argues by its structure, by the very placement of one thing next to another. And it really means there's a lot of um, beauty in savouring even the little words like but. Arguably the most important but ever written is Romans 3.21 and you'll see why when we get there. Um, But now is the little phrase. Um, And the structure and the way it pivots and the way it builds and the way it takes us up to the summits is part of the teaching. Um, And so savouring the summits is part of that. Um, I had a sneaky fifth one which I dropped out which was... (laughs) Um, about uh, enjoying the semantic connections, but I think I'll do that one uh, on the slide. Um, so, fourthly, uh, be shaped by the book. As I've said, this is not mere spectation, but it, it, co- it really does um, threaten, in a good way, to colonise our very hearts and wills. So, seeing Romans um, in its setting, is this a letter or just a giant essay? I've kind of already um, addressed that. Um, but Wayne is going to come up in a moment and speak about the kind of um, situation into which Paul was writing, but just to give you a brief um, setup, so most estimates are he's writing about 57 AD so on this little timeline, that's going to be hard, Dad, I think you're out for that one, aren't you, right? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is um, I think most of you guys are but I'll, t- I'll talk you through it um, So down here we have the Bible timeline um, and <laughs> I don't know if anyone can see that. And Marcus is doing the iPhone snap. Um, so, just in here, between um, Pentecost and Jerusalem um, being destroyed in 870, Paul's very active on his missionary trips and he's done one, two, three trips. And by the time he writes Romans, he is a seasoned campaigner and he's been preaching this gospel till he's blue in the face. And he knows, I mean, one of the things I want to get at with the structure, he knows how people react. And so one of the things to look out for in the book is the presence of this mysterious character we can call the imaginary interlocutor, the, the person who interjects. Uh, I'm going to identify Dad for this uh, this purpose because he actually does tend to interject. Um, but what Paul does is, in a way, field questions. Like you know, it's like he's been in a classroom for for 20 years and he's done the same lesson over and over again, and he can see the looks coming over his student's face, and he goes, I know what you're thinking up there in the back. And he says, so, you think there's no reason um, to stop sinning? So, why don't we go on sinning so grace may abound? You know, he says, um, he asks in Romans 6.1, and then he goes on and spends the whole chapter answering um, that very question. Or in Romans 9 to 11, this this interjector gets really, really active and keeps saying, well, does that mean God's failed? I mean, does his word, his promises not hold true? And Paul keeps responding and defending the gospel against this um, lurking interjector um, who we can identify with at many points. Um, I'll come back to him in a moment but um, he's, uh, that was to say that he's, he's a very seasoned preacher by this point. He's writing um, to Rome, possibly from, from Corinth because he's na- he names a lot of people in chapter 16. But basically chapter 16 is a whole lot of, the last chapter of the book is a whole lot of um, you know, Chloe says hi, Erastus says hi, 20 people say hi to 20 other people in Rome, and it kind of shows you this early, um, early Christian network between cities um, that are the fruit of this, the fruit of the very missionary enterprise um, he's engaged in. Um, but just to draw your attention to a couple of important themes um, here on the third point, which I think is on your outline anyway, um, two things in particular are on his mind, and we know this in, in chapter 15 if you want to look there in your own time, because he mentions them just by the by. One is that he's on his way, or he's he's about to hand in a lot of money that's been collected as an offering to Jerusalem, who are in great economic and financial stress at this point. And the money's coming from Gentiles. And as you've been, I mean, it's great we've been in Acts because you know how significant that is if you've been listening into the the series in Acts, where um, this whole question of can the Gentiles be um, incorporated on an equal basis? Do they need to follow the law? how are they even going to relate and get on, um, is a very, very live one. And Paul, uh, who has a, a particular calling to preach to the Gentiles, is very desirous that, that the church um, can be an expression, a supernatural expression of unity between people who, ethnically speaking, wouldn't be in the same house if they had the choice. Right. So he's, this Jew-Gentile unity is really crucial. Some, so crucial, some people in the last um, you know half century of scholarship have actually argued that, Um, it's not the great themes of justification by faith that Luther was interested in. It's actually the theme of kind of social, horizontal relationships, which is the the key purpose. Um, I'd go for for a line, that, uh, which is Tim Keller's line as well, that those things are are very important and Paul does marshal or sort of utilise the Gospel to address them, but it doesn't mean that the purpose of the book is reducible to, uh, to that application, right? So I think that the justification by faith stuff still... Um, has its um, intrinsic value uh, as well as its sort of social utility. Um, this, the other thing, so he's thinking about jew gentile unity and he's also thinking about um, future missionary work. So he says in chapter 15 how he's, um, he's really longing to come, uh, as he mentions in chapter 1, to come to, to Rome, but he actually is not interested in just hanging out in Rome. He wants to get further west. He feels like he's finished what he was called to do in the eastern of the Mediterranean <coughs> where all these churches have sprung up. But Spain is like the far west. It's the it's the frontier of the gospel. Nobody's there and he is hankering to see Christ's lordship over the Gentiles extended into that far west and what he needs is a really good missionary sending church. People who are going to be on board with the same gospel, the same message as him, people who might provide him with um, moral, material, financial support and bless him and send him onwards. So those two things, Jew-Gentile unity and zeal for the Gospel, are definitely there in the background and kind of, if you like, they're part of the tapestry, part of a, a strand, two strands that weave through um, the whole book. So he's never been to Rome. He's writing to them and he spends a lot of time in Chapter 1, it makes me feel better, saying, I've really wanted to get there, I just haven't been able to. I know I said I would, um, but as I've been listening to some great sermons by Sinclair Ferguson, who pointed out that if Paul, he says he's been praying to get to Rome, and Ferguson points out that if Paul's prayer was actually answered and he had gotten to Rome earlier than he'd um, and in the way that he'd hoped, we wouldn't have had the book of Romans, we wouldn't have had Martin Luther, you know, being transformed or John Wesley being transformed. And it's a great illustration of the wisdom of God and his providence. In Paul would never have known that that frustrated non answer to prayer would result in probably, well, in Sue's favourite book. Probably the most um, influential book of the Bible um, in world history. You know an ex- truly extraordinary gift to the church. I mean, it's hard to think of a greater gift. Um, and it came out of his lack of hands prayer of all things. So he doesn't know them and he's, it's not sort of a church. He necessarily has pastoral oversight like the Corinthians when he writes to really scold them um, for their wayward uh, ways. Um, and he's, he's sort of reaching out and saying, this is my gospel, this is what I believe in and I believe you believe it too. And, and I think there's this tacit hope he's going to work together with them. Um, so at that, this point, I think I want to um, invite Wayne up for the inaugural Wayne's World. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's this question, what life was like for Christians in Rome in between 50 and 60
2: AD. Thank you, Mike. I'm not going to pick on you, Glenn. (laughs) Um, To understand the book of Romans, we need to uh, walk in Roman sandals for a while. Um, Unless we understand the culture of Rome, uh, we won't understand Romans so well. So, I want to just take you back to um, the early church and to Pentecost where some Romans probably heard the gospel and they took it to Rome Um, and for 30 years in Rome they plundered stumbled around um, passing stories around um, oral traditions and um, if they hung around a synagogue they would have heard the Hebrew story. But life in Rome for the ordinary person was incredibly different to what we experience in Sydney. Um, It wasn't a very pleasant experience, life was precarious, a lot of death around, Um, health was poor, nutrition was bad, diseases and infections everywhere. High infant mortality, bad teeth, postulating sores, (laughs) cankerous
3: ears,
2: (laughs) terrible doctors and some probably worse dentists. Um, The streets and alleys of, of Rome were very, very dangerous. A lot of soldiers would have been on leave from... Duties in the Roman Empire, and these guys were killing machines. Um, Very, very dangerous men. A lot of slaves around. Probably the safest place for you to be would be a slave in a a wealthy man's household. And then you could work yourself into a free position. So, um, a lot of poverty about Although the followers of Jesus in that day were working hard to spread the Gospel, um, there were still very, very few in Rome. We look at our society today and we see Christian schools, we see churches on every corner, Um, there's Christian bookshops here and there, and uh, everybody in the world today has heard the name Jesus. I'd say 99% of the world have heard the name Jesus. In Rome, not so. Nobody knew him except for some, except for the converts. So it was a tiny blip on the historical radar at that time. And most Romans wouldn't uh, wouldn't know a Christian. They wouldn't be able to distinguish them from a Jew, really. They were sort of like a Jewish cult, and uh, a bit like today's. A lot of today's people couldn't tell you the difference between a Roman Catholic and a Protestant, and they probably think Jehovah's Witnesses just one of the Christians. So our, our spiritual forefathers are men in homes or catacombs. They were fairly paranoid about the consequences of being caught and not worshipping the emperor. Um, a lot of people would have seen them as a, some sort of weird cult and you know, talking about things like... Eating the body of Christ would have, some people would have suspected they were sort of a cannibal cult, maybe. And uh, Roman people were um, incredibly superstitious, generally. Um, Most of the um, rulers were half mad. Nero, Diocletian, um, some of them thought they were God. So, This is uh, the sort of atmosphere that this gospel was developed in. So sometimes they met at at night and this would have created some suspicion. But they needed to be out of sight sometimes. If they were caught, they faced death, sometimes torture, um, persecution from fellow citizens. Um, they were treated as scapegoats sometimes. For Nero was um, known to have used them as candles in his garden party. But that was a little bit later, post-60. The persecution got a lot worse up until uh, Constantine where he, he legalised Christianity and became the most common religion. But for those three or 400 years it got worse. Uh, They were accused of practising black magic, incest, all sorts of accusations. They refused military service and did not take part in politics or law or anything that included pagan traditions. And the Roman uh, authorities would have questioned their loyalty to Rome. But uh, persecutions at that time were sporadic, didn't usually last long, um, richer people were, like John were exiled to Patmos, poorer Christians were crucified. The Gospel spread because it appealed to those who were, uh, had hard lives. And they were seen by others as, as people that would die for their religion. Some of the house churches at the time had various different theological biases. There were Jews who um, had their particular biases based on their, their uh, understanding of election. They didn't quite know how... The Gentile will fit into that big picture, and the Gentile probably didn't know how he would fit into that big picture. They didn't have leather bound Bibles, unlike us. So they were divided on lots of issues, and Paul addresses this in Romans. And if you read Romans, you can you can Try and pick out what's going on. Why is he writing this? What was happening here that, that caused this? And because everything he wrote was for a reason. So what these people needed to hear most of this time was a word from God. And they got it through Paul. They needed sound teaching and they needed a lot of encouragement. And you look at that passage in Romans 8, 35 onwards where where Paul says what can separate you from the love of God and he just goes through this diatribe and he, he actually shows how all of these things which are poles apart can't separate you from the love of God so in actual fact he, he, he runs it out drags it out but what he's saying is nothing can possibly, not persecution nothing can separate you from the love of God so he's encouraging them They were facing death, a lot of uncertainty, disease. So, what God needed most was a unified church. And this is what the Gospel does to people. And this is what we'll see time and time again through Romans, is lack of unity and Paul setting to establish that. Okay. And if you want to learn about first century Christianity, this guy is a historian and sociologist, Wayne Meeks, and it's called First Urban Christian. Really, really interesting. We'll mm. leave a book table for a moment. I guess, browse
0: book tables. Thank you. Thanks very much, Wayne. Um, that's great and, and quite right. Um, we're on the same... Uh, Paige in many ways, I was thinking about similar themes to Wayne, um, although I hadn't thought about postulating, what did you say, postulating sores um, and pancreas <laughs> tears, but that's the sort of, you're right, the, the, the kind of desperation, just even in living conditions, let alone persecution, is so worth remembering um, when, we, when we're hearing what the gospel means in life and death terms. Um, just to um, draw some of this sense of purpose and occasion together, um, I wanted to suggest this um, to you. I'm drawing on... Uh, I, I put it in the diagram myself, but I'm drawing in substance on this book, which I recommend too, Christopher Ashe, um, Teaching Romans, which you really don't need to be teaching it in order to enjoy it. It's actually just a really great, easy-to-read exposition I can recommend to you. But he says there are kind of three connected purposes, all of which enforce—you know mutually reinforcing. So the Gospel humbles us before God in Christ. And as a result, when we see those who are different to us, it breaks down that native pride which indwelling sin has. When we we are so quick, I mean, we're native, natively, as um, in the flesh, as Paul would say, we we just judge difference. Is that that's really hard to see, isn't it? At the back um, down here, I don't know what I can do about it. There's three, there's a triangle that at the top. says humility before God in Christ. The bottom right says church unity across ethnic difference. So that very humility promotes unity. And the unity enables the church to work together effectively for mission. So you've got humility, unity, and mission, all kind of mutually reinforcing. And the gospel works its effect on individuals, but it's never, uh, as the new Sovereign Grace website says, it's never just Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. And so it works its effect on churches, as churches, and churches then planting churches. This is the kind of church you need to plant churches is a church that's united and zealous for mission. You need both those things, and to have that, you need a church rooted in the gospel and the humility that it brings about. So you can keep those purposes in mind. Um, where we're we To following the structure um, was the next thing I wanted to get to. Um, the thing about Romans, which is wonderful and which is which enables its kind of um, which enables people to spend you know epic amounts of time just camping out and soaking it up. Um, is this basically linear structure? As in, it's not just a series of topics, like you could say in some senses about Corinthians, or that there might be structure. It's it's a it's going from A and therefore B and therefore C, and so it's one of the things. It's linear, and you can really look for those little hinge words like but and now. And as my dad taught me faithfully as a young man, what's the therefore therefore? And and you look back and you look forward as and you follow the line the through line. Um, but Amazingly, this book is full of what Christopher Ash calls trailers, and literally, like you know, when you see a trailer for a movie, you know, coming soon at the cinema, you get this kind of little clip that packs the essence of something that's going to be really unpacked later. So the greatest trailer of all is um, Chapter One, Verse uh, 16 and 17, where Paul somehow condenses <laughs> the, the impact of the gospel in the two verses here, which is where he says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's a trailer. Jew first and to the Greek is a trailer for the whole Jew and Greek, Jew and Greek. There's a, a rhythm to the whole book where it's Jew first, Greek, Jew first, Greek, and all to bring them um, together. Then this verse here, how much goodness can you pack into one small package? It says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, that clause there is packed for, it, it, in a way, it's, it's the, you, you drop it in the water and the book of Romans expands, right? It's all, it's all <laughs> compacted into this, um, uh, especially one a it's compacted into this uh, first clause here. Righteousness, by the way, we don't see it in English, but there's, and this is what I was going to do for that fifth point on semantic connections, there's one word that, behind um, one Greek word that's behind a whole lot of English words. Just, justify, justice. It's the same as righteous and righteousness. There's one word. And so Paul's deliberately using the word, um, like if you look up that word in the concordance, Romans just canes it. Like there's scores of uses in Romans and the English translators, I think, to make it easier on our ears, sometimes alternate between just and justice and justifier. But Paul is hitting us over the head with this word, because the great puzzle of Romans, which Luther knew, is how can God be just and justify the sinner? And he, he poses that in stark terms. And then when he answers that, it's the sweetest relief, as, as Luther found out. It is the gate. You know, for Luther, it was the gate of heaven. Um, so we've got righteousness as a theme that's unpacked. And then faith, from faith, for faith. It's almost like Paul's just saying, it's just all about faith and faith and more faith, right? And he, he often uses... Um, tautologies in this letter. Bad, bad grammar, technically, like saying the same thing twice. But again, he's trying to hit us over the head with its faith and its from faith and its for faith and its faith from beginning to end. And just to make sure, I'll quote from Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live uh, by faith. So those themes, are his um, his kind of thesis or um, a motif, if you like, if you're, if you're into classical music and you think about it, a symphony, it's the The motif that keeps coming back and coming back, and it gets, you know, it's held up in different light here, and it sounds a little bit different there. That it keeps circulating through. Um, I couldn't think of an example from pop music, so i just stuck with the classical music. But you might be able to help me. Um, So going back to the structure. um, So we've got important trailers. Um, I mentioned this um, question and answer, back and forth style um, diatribe with with um, him responding to this um, imaginary interlocutor or this person who you can always hear in the background standing up and saying, oh, what about what about this, Paul? And he says, ah, well, I've got the answer for you. Um, and then, yeah, so I've got the thesis or motif. Now, what I was going to do, I don't think we have time now, but you could do this on your own, um, is even in the first, I mean, just to show how obsessed Paul is with the Gospel, um, in the opening few verses, right, one... Especially one, one to eight, and then one, even taking one, one to fifteen, as a, as a block. So we get, just to put it in context, um, you can see here an, a, a kind of overview. I think it's it's fairly helpful one, just of the big blocks, the linear, the way that the building blocks of Romans are kind of laid out. And we've got this little introduction here, um, and I'll, I'll unpack those in a moment. But even in that little introduction, right? He takes the conventional form of a letter and. It's different. We we write um, dear Charlotte at the top and then love Brendan at the bottom, right? But um, so you have to wait till the, if you didn't know, you have to wait till the bottom to find out. But in first century letters, you would say it's a Brendan, called to be your fiancé or whatever, um, and 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 give the the kind you know state something about the nature of their relationship. So it's it's a from to, and it's actually much closer to our email convention. Whereas I've got here, you can you've got the from and the two and the subject bar straight up. But what Paul does, if you notice, and have a look in your own time, he even takes the from and the two and he puts brackets in them, but the brackets are like seven verses long and each verse is like packed full of like a biblical theology of the whole gospel and how it's about the son of David according to the flesh he was raised from the dead according to the spirit and straight away alerts us to the fact that this is a gospel that was signposted in the law in the Old Testament and in the prophets, um, but which is going to promise... uh, new life apart from the law. So, have a look at that in your own time. What I want to get to is the body of it, and I like just the shape. This is Christopher Ash's shape because it takes this rather intimidating, intimidating book that, as Brendan rightly said, and breaks it into its um, kind of key argumentative parts. So you've got—I don't know—can you guys read that, or is the font too small? You mm-hmm. can. So you've got um, intro, then you've got from 1:16 to the end of 4, coming mm-hmm. under grace. Um, so how, how is it that we go from being outside of grace to under grace? The second part, what is it then to live under grace? If you're standing in grace, as Paul says in chapter 5, what is it to live there? What does life look like under grace? Is it all rosy now? Uh, and the answer is no, of course, um, but it's full of hope. The 9 to 11 talks about the overflow of grace, this grace that's being given to the Gentiles somehow as overflowing from Israel to the Gentiles, and then it's going to flow back to the, to Israel. Um, and 12 to 15. So 12 is that great moment in a lot of Paul's letters where it's like, okay, having seen all of this awesome stuff, here's how to live. 12 is like a hinge. It, it, it is really, in view of God's mercy, he says, offer your very bodies as living sacrifices, as living dead people. Offer your whole selves to God's disposal. And then several chapters of unpacking it, not just in your own life, but in the life of the church um, in relation to outsiders, including the Roman Empire, as Wayne pointed out. Uh, And then he wraps up at the end with some of that discussion of his future mission um, and, you know, the highs and hellos between Corinth and Rome. But you've got this sense of the blocks. Now, you'll be relieved to know we're only going to get to there tonight, to the first two blocks. But I want to suggest to you, I'm not going to use... I like the shape of it, but I'm going to offer a different content to you. And this is on your um, sheets, on the second side of your sheet. This is really um, the meat of um, what I I want you to take home. Because this is where, as I said, his structure is the argument, if you like. It is the the teaching, the way things are set um, next to each other. So what I want to put to you is that there's... um, yeah, it's similar to the other one, but just just going, I want to look at these first three in particular tonight. But I want to break, or suggest to you that there's a, a section we can hold together that's all about our need for the Gospel. Now, there are many ways you could think about. I mean, of course, they're all in a way artificially imposed, but they are helpful, these, these sort of structures, to give you a sense of a, a roadmap for the book. Um, and I've chosen, um, like, uh, and it's not me, I'm, I'm borrowing... Um, several major scholars in doing this, but the Gospel, I think, is probably the best overall thing, because that is the one Paul, you know, makes his central motif as we looked at. So if we think about the Gospel, we could see the whole book is firstly arguing our need for the Gospel. So Paul doesn't just say, hey, I've got some good news. He has to give you the bad news first that makes the good news good. And if we don't understand the bad, we don't understand the need, we don't understand How good or how amazing grace is. We might understand grace, but not how amazing it is. So our need for the gospel, the reign of sin, the heart of the gospel. And this is um, such an important part of the book that traditionally a lot of people saw this as the meaning of the whole book. That is justification, getting right, so how can you be made righteous? The answer Paul argues in 321 to the end of 4 is by faith and only by faith. In Christ and only in Christ, and by grace and only by grace. So justification by faith is the absolute essence of what this gospel is. That's the heart of it. And then I think the most wonderful, and I think here's the summits I've been talking about. Chapters five to eight. Five is like a little, you know, peak. It's like a, a baby summit. And then eight is the ever It's the peak where he just gets you to stand back and he harvests the implications of the gospel for believers' lives. And he does it in the most gracious and realistic terms. He looks square in the face of suffering, uh, square in the face of the battle of indwelling sin, and still yet points you to Christ, uh, not only in the present, Christ's past, present, and glorious future. So um, that's where uh, we're going. And then if you wanted to follow this structure through, I'd suggest 9 to 11 is defense of the gospel in relation to the problem of Israel and then the transforming power of the gospel from 12 onwards. But well, I want to start at the beginning and really just spend most of the time here because it is the most, important. well it's foundational for all that follows. And so we're actually going to read, how's this? We're actually going to read some Romans um, tonight. And we're going to, I want to start with the most, <laughs> the most blistering assessment of humanity you will ever read, guaranteed. Um, and it starts in uh, 1 verse 18. Now, I would like to get somebody else's voice in the mix. What about um, Andrew Ross? Would you be feeling inclined to read any Ross? I don't want to impose. Hey. Oh, 18 to the end, or if you get to... yeah, yeah, to the end of 16,
3: just just the
0: the vibe, yeah, the whole thing um, to the end of the chapter. Alright, what about Joel? Do you want to take it uh, from 24?
4: said he wanted. No, no, Joel. <laughs> 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 <Joel>. <laughs> 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 This
0: is pretty much like a great talk. it's right, really. um, <laughs> Here we go. Thanks, Rossi. 18. 18. yep. The of god from against the god- and
3: of men who the truth the Since what from the
4: All manner of unrighteous, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, haughty, boastful, convention of evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them but they give approval to those who practice them.
0: Well, thank you, Joel. Yeah. Now, this, these verses, um, I'm told, were printed on a t shirt in an American college recently without any attribution to the Bible. And those who, it was a Christian group who did it. And they were hauled into the office of the, the Chancellor and told to take down immediately such offensive um, texts. And not knowing, the, the Chancellor not, not recognizing at all that it was from you know, the, this greatest of New Testament books, from Sue's favorite book of all things. And it is really, really hard to read. And Paul hits us very hard um, uh, from the outset. Um, There is no excuse, he says. And in a way he's claiming to know, and this is divine revelation, he's claiming to know something and telling us something that unbelievers um, think isn't true. They don't know it about themselves, they don't recognise it about themselves. They wouldn't acknowledge it about themselves that though they know God, they do not acknowledge Him as God and exchange his glory for the glory of idols. He, he brands us basically a race of idolaters at heart. And it's a really, I mean, in itself, there's so much awesome theology there that shows us um, not to attack the fruit. So, homosexuality there is fruit, it's not the root. The illustration of homosexuality, um, or, you know, it's a particular sin formation, if you like. Uh, and it's probably used because, and I'll get to why in a moment. Um, when we look at chapter 2, it's probably used because it scandalised Jewish people. And this, we have got to remember, this is a, a Jewish, um, partly Jewish church in a pagan culture in which homosexual practice um, may have had different kind of cultural meanings then, but, but practice is uh, rife. And it's something that Jews would see themselves as set apart from. But what Paul is showing us is that it's just one manifestation of a whole creation that has gone berserk because of its fundamental um, idolatry. Um, this is a, I think a really helpful diagram from Mash Again. this is the, the essence of the problem where we're created to be in relationship as human beings looking upwards in worship to our Creator, Both, you know, even as simple as acknowledging him and thanking him for creation, but instead uh, and exercising of stewardship over the creation, instead we turn it, we flip it upside down and start worshiping the created rather than the Creator. And from that very fundamental disordered relationship, all the disorder in relationships spring. And so it's a really sobering word for us to not um, have superficial assessments of sin in the first place. Uh, And notice that it's written in the third person. It is like a Today Tonight montage. It is just (laughs) the worst of the scum out there. It's like combining bludgers on the dole who don't pick up the rubbish in the backyard, who make their kids fat, and take money from the government, all in one. And it's all in the third person. (laughs) Right? It's all in the third person. And then let's read chapter 2, verse 1 together. I'll read it. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's an extraordinary pivot, and this is the kind of thing to look for in Romans. All third person, it positions you, and it's almost like he's laid a trap for the self-righteous. Um, because when we see an assessment like that of human sin, there's kind of usually one of two reactions. One is it given in 1 verse 32, where he says, um, there are those who know it's wrong, but they give approval anyway. So it's kind of a response we might even be tempted to. It's not really that bad. Like, God's assessment is a little bit severe it's just self-expression, it's not really idolatry, you know. it's liberation, it's not really sin. It's surely the wrath of God can't be aligned. He can't be angry, he can't be furious with this. That's one response. We've, we lessen the tension by lessening the severity. The other, Paul hears, this is where the interjector, like the, the figure in the back row, uh, might say, he hears the, he hears the blistering assessment and he says, Look, Paul. I just want to commend you on your, your your moral assessment of things. I just think you nailed that. You know what a terrible world it is. Uh, That's why I call it the Today One Touch. Because I think, uh, uh, and I don't want to tread on. Is that your old employer, Rossi? No. Uh, okay. So, phew. Uh, <laughs> um, well, anyway, I've got to back up, Dr. Um, Phil, <laughs> uh, because I think these kind of this kind of media positions you to feel good about yourself by showing how bad other people are. I mean, this, I got this from Nikki because she told me how secretly she enjoys the pleasure of seeing people getting told to get off the couch by Dr. Phil. You know, you've got a problem. Dr. Phil says, and he's like, yeah, man, that is, they are in bad straits, right? And Paul, he's kind of picking, he, he's oh, in a way sensing among his readers that kind of response. Yeah, the world is so bad. I'm, I'm just so glad I'm not like that. I'm so glad I'm a member of this Jewish community that's got the law, that's got pedigree and has You know, it's been taught what's right and what's wrong. Yes. So people, that's what's wrong with a country today. People don't know right from wrong. And there's this kind of Christian tutting that he has no time for. He turns the full force of the gospel against Christian tutting. And it's, I mean, it's an application point in itself just to, to look out for that tendency towards um, that response to sin. You resolve the tension by not recognising yourself in the sin, right? You, it's like uh, when Jesus talked about the Pharisee, who goes before God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this. I thank you that I tithe. I think, you know, it's just so good that I'm good, right? And um, the sinner goes, Have mercy on me, God. And and so when we're seeing, we're, we're not to lessen the tension by, by reducing the severity. Uh, instead, we're to, we're to use it as one more cause to cry out for mercy uh, for ourselves. Um, there's some key verses which Boy, they make you cry out for mercy. Um, it's in chapter 2, uh, where is it? Chapter 2, verse 6 um, to 11. Get another volunteer. What about you, Riley? Would you mind reading 2, 6 to 11? Uh,
1: he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honour and immortality, he will give it to them.
0: Now, those words, when you spend time meditating on them, uh, you know, are legitimately uh, frightening. They set up the objective standard, which God applies to religious, non-religious. And this whole chapter, if you've got the time to read it, and I encourage you to do, turns from you know looking at them out there, they, the bad, the Gentile world, to you who take shelter without perhaps even realising it in your religious pedigree, in your knowledge of the word, in your, in this case, in their Jewishness, in their religiousness. And God says, that does not count for one iota in his presence. What he, what it comes down to is what you do and nothing else. Not the group to which you belong, not the background you have, but nothing but what you do. And so you start thinking, what am I going to do? You know, am I that bad? Or, you know, And you start chattering in your head, as it were. And to bring um, you to a close, that, that argument follows through. And Paul starts fielding responses from the interjector about, well, isn't there any advantage in being Jewish? I mean, wasn't it, weren't we God's chosen people? And he says, well, yeah, there's advantage in having the law, but there's no advantage in having it when it comes to judgment if you don't keep it. And hypothetically, if a Gentile could keep the law that was written um, in creation on their hearts, they could be more righteous than a Jew who possessed the law, who held it in their hands and didn't do it. What matters is what you do. Um and he pushes us, he herds us all together into this into this kind of pen where we want to escape, right? We start finding excuses. We start saying, surely God's judgment is not that bad. Surely he's not that kind of God. Like, he's, he's not that um, uh, angry at sin. Surely I'm not that bad. Surely I'm going to have some kind of exception to this rule. And he herds us together. And in chapter 3, he um, spends... <laughs> uh, so have a look at chapter 3. Think over in your Bibles. Uh, where he answers this question about what advantage has the Jew, much in every way they have the oracles of God. Um, Verse 9 is a key point. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all for we've already charged that both Jew and Greek are under sin. And he quotes um, like a collage of Psalms which are about people within the Jewish community being sinful and in their cumulative effect um, come down to verse 19 with me in their cumulative effect really are all designed to make us shut up, to shut our mouths before God. Because we, when we hear news about sin and judgment and wrath, I know myself, I, I spent, I mean, this Sinclair Ferguson spent six weeks on these chapters. And he's like, I know you're hurting right now. Right? This is not a comfortable place to be. And what it brings out is this chatter of judgment of others, of relativization of sin, or this, that or the other. But the whole point is to hurt us together, to give us no escape, So we just shut our mouths and cry for mercy. That is the only way through the gospel. That's the only gateway. There is no other gateway. Um, So Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 3, we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Your sight. Now that's, you know, if the gospel's new for you, that is one of the most important verses you need to get a handle on, that there is nothing you can do to get right in God's sight. Nothing you can perform, not even your belief, not even your tears at church or raising of hands can do it, not even an emotional response. Nothing can make you right in your sight, since through the law, he says, comes knowledge of sin. Now, have a look at the next verse. How they begin, verse twenty-one. But now. but now, that's right. As I said, probably the most important "but" <laughs> in the most important book in world history. <laughs> A tiny little word, but boy, it's you know, if you've spent the time camping there and meditating on this, being hemmed in by Paul's um, divinely inspired assessment of our of our real plight. If you spent the time in the valley, you want. <laughs> A but now you want an escape, and really, <laughs> the essence of a Christian is one who has cried out for the but now, who knows their need for mercy, right? So, let's have a look at what the but now is, and that gets us to this, um, the second section that the heart of the gospel justification by faith. I mean, these, these verses are so packed full of, um, Goodness, that I just recommend you—I don't know—tattoo them to your skin or meditate on them in some other less painful way. Um, but the but now, you want to build your life on the on what follows the but now. Um, he says, but now the righteousness of God. Let's read 3:21. Has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And that's a really key point, right? Apart from the law, but it's. Crucial because he'll spend the whole book arguing from the law and the prophets um, that it's rooted in what they promised. So, if you want a convenient image to think about that, think about the law as a signpost. It could never do the saving in itself, but it definitely pointed the way to the Christ, to, to Jesus who would save and showed the, um, the means by which he'd do it. Um, so, it says, um, verse 22 the righteousness, here's the gospel, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. We're all herded into this room, this objective, impartial standard of judgment's held out, and we're all shown to have failed, no matter how religious we think we are, no matter how good our pedigree is, and yet there's a way, there's a way in which God can make you righteous. There's no distinction, he says, and here's a crucial verse, you would know it, it's a famous verse, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. And that, that really draws together all of chapter one that, that we were created to reflect the glory of God in His image. But my, have we messed it up as a society, as a race, as individuals. All have sinned and fallen short. And now, 24 25 is the bits I was thinking about you tattooing. Because what He does is bring together three metaphors, like not just one, but three crucial metaphors to underline how it is, or what it is to be. Made righteous, or what it is to be saved. There's a law court metaphor, and that whole language of justification is the judge pronouncing you not guilty. It's the negation of punishment. But not only so, there's um, you know another really common biblical um, image when talking about salvation. There's the image of redemption, which means being bought back. Having your if you're a slave, the price of your life has been bought, and you're free. You're justified, and you're redeemed. And then, this is a really crucial one, it's one of the um, few uses of this word in the New Testament, um, but really, whenever it's used, it's really important. Um, it's You're saved through Christ's propitiation. And what that word refers back to is the whole, I mean, does anyone know what propitiation means?
3: <laughs> to
0: Paso, Paso and Wayne. Um, <laughs> Alright, Paso, have a go at telling the others what it.
4: Yeah, Christ.
0: by sacrifice. That's first class, Pat. So
3: It
0: was just the economy and you know incisiveness with which he did that. Um, yeah, the absorption of wrath by and and that's right. In the Old Testament, it would be it was used to describe the sacrifice that a priest would have to perform sprinkling blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement just to get near the presence of God. People couldn't, not, not anyone could walk in the presence of God and those who could on certain days um, enter the, the presence of God as it was manifested in the temple did so only by propitiation, by sacrifices of propitiation. And so it's saying Jesus has paid this propitiatory sacrifice, this uh, other people call it expiation, but he's absorbed the wrath through his own death um, as a sacrifice for you. So verse 24, 25, they, they fly past you pretty quickly, but I think those three um, metaphors, are, you know, that's what you want to build your life on, right? And that's, because it's it all about how Jesus has done it all, it logically flows um, into the next um, point here, which is that the only way, in verse 27 he says, he talks about the so idea of Boasting, You know, what what can I have confidence in? What can I rejoice in? Um, My works? No, it's excluded by this law of faith. One is justified by faith apart from works of law. Because there's nothing you could do, the only way to access it is acceptance. And so, chapter 4, this really rounds out this um, second section. I've been thinking about how to put this to you guys because this really struck me, actually, because I think as a in times past, I've really struggled with a legalism of faith, a way that I think that my faith is the means by which I'm saved, as if my faith is a kind of work. So as if I could turn up and and face God, and if he could say, well, why should I let you into heaven? As if I could say, well, I have faith, don't you know? But faith in itself, Paul wants to show us, is not a work. It's absolutely, it is actually the opposite. It's, It's the negation of a work. It's actually... About empty handedness. I can't think of a, uh, myself, it's not one called Jesus, but I can't think of a better image of myself than empty handedness. Um, and I love this verse from this hymn, Rock of Ages, by Augustus Toplady. I always crack up when I hear his name. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, this verse, I mean, uh, it's just it's sublime. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. I know I'm dirty. I want to fly to the fountain where I can be clean. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Now, that's a beautiful picture of faith because nothing in my hand I bring. I just want you to have mercy on me. And that's what Paul goes on to show us in chapter Um, 4. Chapter 4 is like a standalone exposition on the nature of faith. And what he does is show, especially for Jewish readers, how the heroes of their faith, David and Abraham, knew this lesson from the beginning. David, he quotes Psalm 32, (laughs) David knew what empty handedness was. He talked about blessed in chapter 4 verse 7, he quotes David in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Um, The whole psalm is completely relying on God for forgiveness. Empty handedness. There's no, David's not rejoicing that he's done this or done that. He's simply rejoicing